0: Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. We have had the great privilege of welcoming this episode's guest on numerous occasions, starting from the first year we started this podcast in 2007. There is no one who is more articulate about what they do than this man. So it fits that John Badham has authored a definitive guide to the craft of directing. The second edition of his terrific book, John Badham on Directing, has just been released, and it contains a wealth of practical, easily applicable lessons from his many decades making Hollywood blockbusters like Saturday Night Fever, War Games, Blue Thunder, Short Circuit, and Stakeout, just to name a few. This edition of his book is supplemented with new material that addresses the ever-changing landscape of film, television, and streaming. In addition to his invaluable book, one of Mr. Baddam's most entertaining films has just been released on a special edition Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, The Hard Way, starring Michael J. Fox and James Woods. We discuss all of this and much more in this conversation. So tell me that this is the second edition of, of John Baddam on directing. It, it was Was it updated to kind of reflect the... The new landscape of of streaming and and those kinds of platforms.
1: That was the that was the inspiration for for that and and uh, realizing a kind of a hard fact for some people to realize, which is that uh, there's almost no difference anymore between uh, film and television in in the sense of the, the the old berlin wall that used to exist between it has pretty much crumbled and you know most directors are going to wind up making their living and having their career in some kind of streaming form um you know we're seeing more and more movies coming out first run on netflix or amazon prime you know those those places uh I just I just watched Mank the other night uh, on on Netflix, and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom wow. is coming out in a, in a few days there, so so not only not only are the the lines blurring, but you're going to be you know that's where you're probably going to be making a lot of your living uh, in in that area, and and it's important to know this is the critical part that there's just a whole different, uh, set of customs. And, and you're as a, as a director for many of the streaming projects, you're way down the food chain. You're not, you're no longer number mm. two. Uh, I mean, only a few people are number one, you know, the the Spielbergs of the world, uh, can, can do what, do what they like, but, uh, you know, we're, the feature directors are up toward the top, but when you get down to number fourteen or fifteen, you're 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 suddenly in a in a in a political uh, land landmine field.
0: Yeah. Well, you've been you've been excelling at at this area for for many years, just through through your work with series television, and and in your book you discuss that there's a different hierarchy associated with TV that there are in features and I'm wondering if you could expand upon that and, and 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 tell me if it was a challenge for you to kind of find find your place to to weave into an already existing series well
1: the, the setup is is usually works like this that somebody somebody will conceive uh, a, a series uh, or something that might work as a series And, and they become, you know, they are the producer, even though they wind up being, you know, 11, 12, 13 names as producers. But, you know, some, somebody has created that. That's their, their product, their, their property, and they're bringing in directors and writers, all those other producers who are all writers, uh, they're, they're bringing people in to help them you know direct direct these shows uh... so you're not coming in with it being your project uh, you're you're coming in as one of many directors so, uh... you know there are a few shows the, like uh, the recent undoing that has one director for the whole the whole six episodes but in most cases, there's going to be many, many directors, and and they they have to kind of hew the line as to keeping the look of the show, the tone of the show, all in the way that our head producer had, had created it and has worked out with the network, because he's got to answer, he, she's got to answer to the network uh, eventually. Um Wherever it is, and depending on the network, they could be very intrusive or or hands off. I suppose if you're, mm. you know, if you're daily David Kelly, they're going to be a lot more hands off than if this is, you know, your first show that you've gotten, uh, you know, one of these networks or streaming channels to uh, to order.
0: I'm interested in. Uh, directors and their personal aesthetic and and that doesn't really apply when when you're working with series tv as much as features but when you work on something like a like a psych who was responsible for establishing that initial aesthetic that's carried on throughout is it the producer of the show Uh, it's
1: probably the the producer uh in in tandem with with the, the director who does the pilot, and they, you know, they try to try to work it out. And, you know, sometimes the pilot will sell, but whatever the director worked out, the, the, the producer network may not like and wants changes. And I've come on to some shows and I say, gosh, the pilot is so good. Wow, what a good job so-and-so did. Directing him, oh, yeah, well, we don't talk to him anymore.
2: <laughs> I mean, more than
1: once, and you go, oh my gosh, what went down
0: there? <laughs> That's I, I think about directors, and there are some talking about personal aesthetic. Uh, there are some where you could see a frame, and you know it's theirs,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and they're and they're proud of their individual kind of stamp. While there are others that are equally proud of just being chameleons and being able to to get themselves into I- any world and, and pull it off. How do you consider yourself as a director? Which side of that spectrum?
1: I I, I think I'm turning green at this point, like a chameleon. Uh. <laughs> I'm proud of being green, or what's that from the Muppet movie? I, I've always liked the, the the challenge of adapting to, you know, different kinds of situations and, you know, coming into something, say, Saturday Night Fever, uh, mm. which has a, you know, a kind of gritty, semi-documentary feeling to it, to go to something completely different like the, the Dracula that I did, which... I did right after Saturday Night Fever. Um, You know, that that was just a joy suddenly to get involved in war games and go, I don't know much of anything about computers uh, other than where to plug it in and, you know, and then having to really, you know, do uh, some hard cramming and learning and so on. It was great fun for me. And I've always thought, you know Hitchcock made great, great movies, but I would—I don't know if I would always want to be making those kind of suspense thrillers. Right. They're fun. They're fun to make been... every now and now and then, but to do it as a life's work, uh, I'm, I'm afraid I would get bored and it'd start to be lazy.
0: But there are times there have had to have been times in your career. While you're pulling off all of these major, major blockbuster hits that that are very influential to the popular culture, whether it be Saturday Night Fever or War Games, were you cognizant of always following up those successes with some with, with something completely different to avoid typecasting as a director?
1: Uh, there was probably some of that. I mean, I did get a lot of uh, submissions. After Saturday Night Fever, that were, you know, similar, similar kinds of uh, projects, and I, I felt like, well, I,
2: I've
1: I've already done that, uh, you know, and if if I had liked the scripts as much as I absolutely loved Saturday Night Fever when I read it, then that would have been a different conversation, but but uh, usually they were kind of weak. So, so there is somebody somebody referred to that I had some kind of technology trilogy in in <laughs> Blue Thunder, War Games, and Short Circuit. Um, yeah, and it wasn't deliberate. It was that those scripts were just wonderful and exciting, and you know,
0: and totally different,
1: and, really, and totally different. They were the the tone of them. You know, uh, the tone was was very different. Blue Thunder with helicopters and all kinds of you know futuristic technology, and then Blue Thunder uh, war games with uh, uh, you know a kid almost starting World War III in this hardly understood thing called the Internet, (laughs) and then and then almost like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, we come along with with Short Circuit, which you know starts to make fun of the whole idea.
0: You know, I rewatched uh, War Games just last week, and uh, man, it's amazing how it still plays so perfectly. Uh, and that's always the danger, I think, when you're dealing with films that involve technology, because you know, technology changes every day, and it could become outdated. But there's something so uh, kind of primal about the the teenager that gets in over their heads, and they're they're living that kind of adult world in a way. Um, and the thing that struck me most this last viewing was you were working in a fantastically designed set, uh, you know, wow. the the military operation down there. And I'm wondering how, how you, how you captured, you know, you must've been like a kid in a candy store in that set.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fabulous. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a great set, um, on the biggest stage at uh, MGM, what was then MGM, now Sony, and, and wall-to-wall with something that had never been tried before. There were uh, six, front, six rear projection screens, four front projection screens, and mm. 86 video screens, all of which had to be in dead sync with one another because they're they're you know the, the the images the images are flying up on one well n- nobody had ever tried that before as as I was constantly reminded by by the Hansard brothers who were the ones that figured out how to how to do all of that they were the they were the go-to people uh for all kinds of rear projection and front projection but getting this many things in sync with each other but oh my God, was it was it fun? Because the the old the old limitations of you've got to just stay straight on the absolute parallel axis with with the screen you're looking at, so that you're I don't mean parallel, I mean perpendicular. Uh, those those rules had had gone away because now that suddenly the film that Kodak was putting out was so much faster than before that you could get way off axis and still have a great image. So I was liberated in this wonderful set. Tell me this is one of your simulations, Mr. <laughs> Doctor. All right. Flush the bombers, get the subs in launch mode. We are at DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1. Major Lamb, get me a report on the Whopper. Initial attack profile is a full-scale Soviet strike.
0: Whopper is putting our losses at 85 to 95% of the strategic forces.
1: What does Whopper recommend, Mr. McKittred? Full-scale retaliatory strike. I need some machine to tell me that. The President's on his way to Andrews to join Airborne Command. so we have to give launch option. Has he been in touch with the Premier? The Russians are still denying everything, sir. We have a Soviet submarine launch detection. Let's go into a launch mode Blows up the mountain
0: and I'm wondering because we're talking about uh being a director for television and 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 having to to go into an already kind of established group was that the dynamic at play w- with war games because y- you came in as a replacement director right
1: right at one point uh well the the big thing was to was to try to figure out where where were they going wrong? What was what was the you know happening that that was was causing the producers to be unhappy? And um, and I and I realized in what had been shot up to that point that there there was no sense of fun to it. I mean, a kid stumbling upon the NORAD and and the missile defense system is is funny mm-hmm. i mean it's it's scary but it's also funny and uh and and this little little guy looking out the window thinking that the you know the fbi is going to come trooping in on him or uh all of those bad guys from et in the white suits are going to show up uh
0: I mean, <laughs> it's it's pretty absurd. <laughs> I mean,
1: you but, you just had to had to laugh because you you knew that uh, it was it was innocent, but at the same time, there's this under undercurrent going of the whopper computer, uh, mm-hmm. you know, grinding out stuff, and you think. Oh my goodness! Is it going in that direction? What you know? How's this going? So, trying to keep it light was was the big change, and and that I you know got to, got the producers to sign off on as as to what I thought the difference was and where I thought I could help it uh, mm. to to make it uh, you know make make them much happier than than they were when I when I came in.
0: Yeah. You know, over the years we've uh you and I have talked about several movies on your resume because we've done we've done special shows on specific films.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and
0: so the, the that, that those have been the topics we've dis- discussed in years past and there's some questions that I have that I've never had a chance to ask you and I'm I'm dying to know your input on some of these. For instance, um the crews you work with like a like a musician relies on the same band members from album to album because they have a shorthand and they work well together. Do you kind of try to call upon the same crew members from film to film?
1: As much as I can. Uh, It's uh, a lot of times like you'll work with a great cinematographer, uh, but the next time you've got a film going, that cinematographer is working on something else because I may make, you know, might be lucky to make one film a year. And and a cinematographer could make three, four, five films mm. in a, in a year. Um, so so they're always kind of busy. So it's, it's kind of touch and go in that in that department. And they're the guys that usually carry a lot of crew around with them. They're gaffer and grip and the, those guys. So. Yeah. uh but you do build up a bank of, uh, you know, I, I love this prop man, you know, I love mm-hmm. this wardrobe, this wardrobe person, um, and and like to work with her. The production designer Philip Harrison, I made many movies with. Uh, Arthur Rubinstein composed the score for um, for War Games and for Blue Thunder.
0: Well, that's that's actually one of your collaborations that. Uh, fascinates me because i love film and equally i love film score and i i would imagine as a director when you sit in on those sessions it brings your movie to life in a whole new way i would imagine that would be such an exciting process
1: oh it's great i mean it's just a complete delight the days the the days that the the orchestra come in or whatever kind of you know musical uh, form your your score may take. Um, Arthur was still working where you're bringing in lots of live musicians, and and sy- synthesized music was was kind of hard to come by. But then I did several films with Hans Zimmer, where he's everything is electronic, and 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 so I'm going over there. When I say twelve o'clock at night, I mean twelve o'clock at night. Most nights of the week, I would have to go over and Hans would play for me what he was working on at that point because he worked all night mm. <laughs> so <laughs> so you you couldn't you couldn't go over there before about ten o'clock and uh, he took some kind of a dinner break at twelve so that's how I know um, so so to yeah to sit there and listen to what you know what's coming out of in their mind and and is it gonna, you know, does it work with what I think the score should be like? Uh, it's great fun.
0: Mm. Uh, I read years ago. I read something from Sidney Lumet. I believe it was Lumet who said that he had a ritual where on the first day he would always pull off pull off the first shot in one take, and then say, "Okay, we're moving on," and that would instill a sense of confidence in the performers, in the crew. It was a really kind of simple, whether it be an exterior shot of a setting or something. But um, I'm wondering if you have any similar rituals as a director.
1: Well, there's certainly <clears throat> a lot to be said for, for knowing where you want to go next. And you, you come in first thing in the morning and, and work out a, a setup with the actors and everybody. But the second that you're calling print on something it's great to be able to say, okay, we're moving on, or right, we're going over here right now, and uh, some companies that I've, I've observed the directors on, they'll call cut and print, and then there's this long kind of discussion that starts going on about where to go, and oh, what do you think we should do next, and so on. But, uh, you know, the, the crews like to know, you know, what we're doing, and where we're going, and they like to be feel that they're being led with some with somebody that that is is not going to be messing around. And overtime is great, but please don't keep us till midnight. You know.
0: <laughs> and plus plus momentum is important, isn't it? Oh isn't it gosh, that, that momentum.
1: Energy? Yeah, because no matter how how long a schedule you have, you never have enough time. Mm. You know, I'm sure I'm sure James Cameron shot for nine thousand days on uh <laughs> on Avatar. Uh yeah. and, and probably was complaining at the very end that he didn't have enough time. <laughs> it's, That's probably true. It's just yeah. it's just the you know, the old work expands to fill the time allotted. Uh but, but just uh,
0: but I've also I've also heard interviews with Spielberg where he's talked about this and Spielberg, you know, he he could as popular as he is, he he could afford to take the amount of time that a that a Kubrick or a Fincher takes to make a movie, but he works very fast too. Oh
1: yeah, he he he's he's always been that he's always been that way uh, since Raiders of the Lost Ark.
0: And I would imagine that being under those time constraints kind kind of forces you to make more creative decisions, uh, you know, f- find more creative solutions to problems.
1: Well, go in with with a with a really good idea, and not not go in thinking we'll we'll just work out and solve all of our problems on the day. Go in, yeah. you know, with a good plan. Be ready to throw that plan away if better ideas or problems come up. You can't can't be too hard-headed about it. But but there's a, certainly a, uh, an excitement to moving fast as opposed to. Uh, let's shut down for another hour while we discuss what the next shot is. <laughs> next shot is going to yeah. be and um, and and I and I know I I, th- I think when when Steven worked with George Lucas, uh, I I heard that you know George, who's extremely efficient and and you know made made the first Star Wars for under ten million dollars, which was pretty phenomenal when you think about it because mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. just no messing around uh, just he'd tell you he would finish the sequence and you'd be right to the money on it well I think he had a great influence on on Stephen and you know said look this works you don't have to take all the time in the world try to get you know the perfect the perfect this the perfect that uh, you know just keep mm-hmm. it keep it going
0: in terms of working with actors. I've read that actors like Hackman or Brando, that they they like like to challenge their directors from day one. And if the director stood their ground with them, it kind of developed a respect with the actor. And I'm wondering if you've ever had any experiences like that with an actor.
1: I don't know that I've ever run into anybody as challenging as those two guys. Uh <laughs> I would, I would, I would love to, but I would probably be very nervous. <laughs> the first, first couple of couple of days, uh, you know, working with uh, Lord Olivier on Dracula was was intimidating enough, and yet he's was an extremely kind and generous man who, as a director himself, understood the problems of directors so i got a lot of support from him that maybe i didn't even deserve uh but i, I would go over to him and i'd say sir in this next shot we're going to hey, larry dear boy larry yeah, yes sir yes sir larry sir uh, and, uh, uh i i did say to him uh, you 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 do have to understand that the first movie i ever saw when i was 5 years old my mother took me to see henry the directed by and starring you
2: <laughs> mm.
1: that that it makes it hard for me to call you larry
0: it's wonderful though when when a person like that is is aware of kind of the intimidating baggage they carry and they go out of their way to set you at ease it is uh, that that's very nice yeah but you were with strong very strong personalities whether it be uh olivier or um cassavetes you directed him You directed warren oates i mean these are intimidating people
1: (laughs) well you know i i i I find that trying to treat them like like adults and and not be too precious with them is uh is good they're they're pros they've seen it all uh Mm. I mean, Cassavetes, bless his heart, was one of the sweetest men, but he was perpetually grumpy. But underneath, (laughs) underneath, is this really nice man. Uh, (laughs) I uh, I asked him to, I made some adjustment on a take with him, and he looked at me, he said, kid, I'm going to do things for you that I wouldn't even do for myself. (laughs) Okay, Okay, all right, great, John. In one of my books, uh, Dick Donner told me about working with Hackman uh, and having a fight over over a mustache. That was.
0: Yeah. Yep.
1: I don't know if you if you remember that story.
0: <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. Yes, sir.
1: Um, and yeah, they they just brook no uh, have no patience with with fools, uh, especially Brando. It's just. didn't want to to deal with a lot of directors.
0: In terms of directing actors, I'm always curious where you are when a take is being played. Are you behind a monitor or are you beside the camera right in there with them?
1: My preference is to be as close to the camera as I can get. The video village, uh, first of all, gets crowded with all kinds of people who are in their you know, having little minor conversations among themselves and, and, and so on, and I feel kind of separated. On the other hand, I do like to see exactly what's going down on, on the camera. So uh, usually nowadays people can provide me with a little handheld monitor that I can, mm-hmm. I can look at, at what's going on, but I can still be within sight of the actors and be able to talk to them You know, say you know, okay, let's keep it rolling, and we're going to go back and let's just do the scene again. We won't, we won't cut. You know, that kind of gentle communication works better than being fifty feet away, hidden in a tent, and you're yelling out. Okay, let's do it again. All right,
0: yeah. See, I like I like the notion of the director being right in there with the actors and the actors feel like they have a partner right there.
1: Yeah, they're, they're out performing. For them. They're performing for you. Uh, you know, I mean, that's the way that's the way it was done in movies for how long? Uh, you know, 70 years, uh, 70, 80 years until Jerry Lewis came up with the idea of a video assist. Um and and everybody kind of glommed onto it, and it kind of became something that slowed you down tremendously if you could play back what you were doing, because suddenly you were spending all your time playing stuff back. But it also created that separation between the director and and the cast.
0: Yeah, and and but, but on the flip side of that, there there are actors like a uh, like a Hackman or Robert Duvall. That I've heard anecdotes before that they're so subtle with their performances that you can be right up there close to them and not realize what they're doing until you see it on screen, like in a replay of dailies or something.
1: Right, right, and and, and yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of tricky. You have to kind of learn how to interpret that, uh, and and Travolta has. Uh, you know, told me once that he was often getting comments from directors he had worked with, saying, "You know, you're not doing anything." He says, "No, no, I'm doing plenty. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I'm just fine. Just wait till you see the dailies, and and then they realize, okay, no, it is right there." Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I learned early on that every every actor is uh, very, very different in in how close you can get to them or how far away what's the ideal spot for them and and I you probably remember god bless it Vic Morrow who died yes, in the sir. you know the, the helicopter accident on on twilight zone i worked i worked with him oh gosh maybe it was my fifth or sixth show that i ever did in my life and and he is so subtle and underplayed so much that I had to keep getting in closer and closer to him to be able to see what he was doing, and he was a lot was going on, but if if you got very far away from him, you lost all of that. So you, so you learn to you know make the adjustment of when it's important to really see what he's feeling. On on the other hand, uh, say Frank Langella. Uh, yeah, you know, he he lets you know what where he's coming from. You know that you know what that character is doing. You could be, uh, you know, a long way away and, and get it, because he understands he understands what kind of lens you've got on, where you you know where where your camera is, and he's going to adjust his performance to to that reality. So he's very very tech savvy. Jimmy Woods, same thing.
0: Yeah, because there is that technical aspect of of great performers, and and do you find that performers uh, ask you, you know, the kinds of lenses you're using to kind of calibrate the, how they should size or scale their performance in any given take?
1: Well, I saw Jimmy Jimmy Woods uh, talking to an actor on on the hard way, uh, talking to another actor who is not as and nearly as experienced. And he said, "Just, just look at the lens box. Look at the front of the camera. It tells you right there what lens is on, because uh, there's like a little lens shade that they mm-hmm. that they clip on after they've got the lens in there, and the, and the shade says Panavision 75 millimeter." Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so there are some actors like that, and 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 Langella, who are very aware of the technical aspects, and others that don't want to know. They don't want to be mm-hmm. thinking about that. They they're just worried about what am I playing, and you know, am I bringing my character to life? Uh, you know, don't don't tell me <laughs> that you've got such and such a lens here. Because that
0: yeah. you know, I can't I can't act that lens. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do you have time for just a couple of more questions? Shoot. Okay.
1: Uh, the
0: the the book is filled with not only your own terrific insights, but but uh, additional insights from dozens and dozens of working directors who we all love and admire. And I'm curious it, it, when you're in a situation where you spend time with fellow filmmakers. Do you inevitably start to talk shop? It
1: it absolutely it happens. I mean, you know, it usually comes up with you know war stories, where God, I had this situation where this guy came to the set and he didn't want to do he didn't want to do the scene as it was written, and oh my God, so you get it you get into it that way, and of course those war stories can be great fun. Uh, you can waste a lot of time uh, telling it. Um, but my my friend Mick Garris, who's a you know wonderful director of, of mm-hmm. horror movies and so on, Mick often uh, every year has has a dinner for lots of his director friends, and and it'd be thirty forty directors in in the room over at the Smokehouse near Burbank, uh, near the Burbank Studios and Warner Brothers. Uh, just uh, it's just so much fun to be sitting next to John Landis or you know some other uh, t- terrific uh, director in there and sharing stories because directors often just never see each other. They're off in different places, uh, you know, working on different jobs. Yeah. So so my my original idea of going and asking you know different directors their opinions about things. Uh, seemed to work out really well because I, I would find out that look look at all these different opinions that Steven Soderbergh has about rehearsal versus uh, Francis Ford Coppola versus Sidney Pollock, right? And and they right. all they all express different ways of rehearsal, and you had to say they're all valid if they work. That's valid. Uh, mm-hmm. You you don't have to be dogmatic and just say it's this one particular way because uh look at the these great guys they their success proves that they know what they're doing.
0: Yeah. You know, forgive me if I'm if I'm ignorant in this aspect of your career, but have you ever dabbled in documentary?
1: No. No, I've I've dabbled in imitating documentary. Right. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned with Saturday Night Fever or some of my early television work like a show called The Law with Judd Hirsch. Uh, it was all meant to be as documentary as possible.
0: Because I see these doc, uh, the, uh, uh, a lot of the great documentaries, obviously they're not working with actors, and many times they're interviewing subjects that are recalling extremely emotional parts of their lives. And I'm wondering how much of your book do you think can apply to something like that, where you jo- cajole your actor in this case your subject to to, to to take it in a certain direction i'm wondering if this can be applied to the documentary form just as well as features
1: well you know people like the great documentarians like frederick Wiseman. uh you know they they go in and, and they shoot what they get they're not trying to influence they're not trying mm. to go in with with an agenda uh you know, Wiseman walks out with miles and miles worth of film uh, and then puts a story together. Um, you know, a, a documentary that has been done to some kind of agenda becomes propaganda. Uh, right. So it depends on what you're making. If you want to be making, you know, si- Triumph of the Will, that's propaganda. Great filmmaking but, but definitely toward a certain agenda. And, and then there is, you know, the Wiseman kinds of things, or about, about all the different subjects that we are continually seeing. Uh, it's, it's a terrific area of, of filmmaking, but it requires a lot of patience and, and a lot of making people feel comfortable talking about mm-hmm. what they're talking about and, and letting the story take you where where it may
0: Mm. the thing that i love most about your book is you know a lot of a lot of newer filmmakers are uh, obsessed with the the technical side of it creating indelible images from one frame to the next and your book really brings it back down to interpersonal interpersonal relationships um and and dealing with actors specifically which you're just a master at and i'm wondering if you could maybe address why the role of the actor in your film is the most important part of what you do
1: i think i think we you know the movies that we remember the movies we revere it's not about because the camera was moving wonderfully you know, it's not about the, the images. I mean, there there's uh, you know some of that. It's the characters. It's uh, you know, do the characters dig into our into our soul? I don't know what the plot of Saturday Night Fever is, and I made the damn thing. Uh, I, I I can tell you a lot about the characters, and yeah. and uh, you know, between that and the fabulous music, uh, you know, it made it made a terrific picture. But, but reading reading that originally with no music and not knowing what the music could possibly be, I was just blown away by the characters and I think that's that's what we appreciate in 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 movies uh, is, is loving loving those kinds of kinds of things so um the hardware of movies in the the cameras, the microphones, the lights all of that um are relatively easy to learn and to develop an eye as a as a cinematographer, or have some kind of visual eye is is a real talent, but you don't want to put all your eggs in in that basket. You you want to you want to have you want to have characters that speak to you. So so when you have say Breaking Bad for example, uh, I I, I kind of know what the plot is going along, but it kind of rambles along. I'm just fascinated by Walter White and by his wife and by the guys that work with him. And, you know, that that's a whole uh, thing that I remember about that show, not so much the brutal killings or the, <laughs> the, 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 the violence or, or oh, my God, the cops are going to get Walter White. No. Uh. <laughs> well, you
0: know, if 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 film is kind of a, a, a machine to create. Empathy. Uh, I think actors are the engine behind that. I mean, you you empathize yeah. with the people on screen.
1: You know, the, in in at Chapman where I where I teach, uh, it, it was early early on that it, it was decided that you know our students are really good with the hardware, but they don't understand the human beings, and human beings are not nearly as compliant as your camera you can't set an f16 on, on a on an actor uh, you know right, here's your f-stop kid <laughs> uh, and 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 that that's difficult to learn and you can spend a whole life you know learning how to help actors bring out the best of their characters and 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 give give good performances you you learn you learn the intricacies of the camera uh a while ago mm-hmm. and and there's still obviously a great art to it and there are great cinematographers and so on um but if if the if the characters aren't speaking to you then maybe the first time you see the movie it'll be kind of fun but then you go back and you go well I know what's going to happen here I know what the plot is you know i'm not excited about this anymore
2: come on john look my character kills this guy he's probably an innocent bystander i
1: just want to know what that's like you can't not by asking someone
2: Joey, you open up i just want to know what it feels like to be inside
1: your skin i don't want you inside my skin do you understand it's private what's in there belongs to me you're not going to learn what it means to be a cop by eating hot dogs and picking your teeth and asking stupid questions we live this job it's something we are not something we do every time a cop walks up to a car and has to give a speeding ticket, he knows he may have to kill someone, or be killed himself. That's not something you step into by strapping on a rubber gun and riding around all day. You get to go back to your million-dollar beach house and your bimbos and your blowjobs and you get 17 takes to get it right. We get one take. It lasts our whole lives. We mess it up and we're dead. Fuck, was that great. I'm look,
0: John. Could you just do that one more time for me, please?
2: John, come on. John Moss, Meaning of
0: Life. Before I let you go, I want to bring up The Hard Way, which has uh, just been released on a special edition Blu-ray uh, on which you provide commentary. And I'm wondering when you have an opportunity to, to review one of your films... Uh, what that experience is like for you? Do you do you automatically see? Oh gosh, I w-, do you wince at moments, or are you accepting that was a that was a certain time of my life, and I'm proud of the work I produced at that time? Or what what was that process like for you?
1: It's probably all of the above. You look at it <laughs> and go, oh no, I just thought of what the solution to this problem is. I mean, I woke up in the middle of the night and said, oh. The Bingo Long Traveling All Stars that I made in 1976. (laughs) You know, I just thought of the perfect, you know, answer to such and such a problem, and why, why why now? So there's always that going on, and I look at things. And I I was looking at at the the pilot, I mean the the trailer for the Hard Way, recently, and said, Oh, this is a pretty funny movie. Oh, Mm -hmm. look at that. (laughs) <laughs> That's nice. I could step away from it because, you know, comedies, uh, you know, once you've seen the joke a couple of times, it's no longer funny. So it was nice to be able to see the interplay between Woods and, and, and Michael J. Fox. Um, yes. And, yep. and, and, and they're, I mean, the two of the greatest scene stealers of, of our acting generation, <laughs> you know, they, they could go to jail for felony scene stealing. And 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 so now you put them together, and 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 there's a, this kind of mini war going on on screen, watching, watching Jimmy try to put one over on Michael, who then outdoes him, and and back, back and forth, you know. It, it turned out to be great chemistry.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because it, th- that movie will live because of the, the interplay of those two different personalities. Uh, i love the hard way i I think it's i think it's one of your one of your great movies
1: well thank thank you that's 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 wonderful to wonderful to hear
0: i love all of your films and i thank you for them and i thank you for this beautiful book and for allowing me some time to talk to you
1: about it oh well it's my my pleasure it's always fun talking to you
0: you as well my friend let's do it again sometime
1: okay anytime you've got you got my number, Jamie, so you, you know i'm I'm at your service.
0: I appreciate it very much. you have a
1: great day, sir okay, you too bye- bye bye-bye. bye-bye.